Welcome to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast, a series exploring the rich, nuanced history of Grambling State University, the city of Grambling, and the people who make it. This series is a collaborative project between students and faculty of the History Department of Grambling State University, as well as faculty from the University of Arkansas. The Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history project, has been made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities in partnership with the Social Science Research Council. Additional funding was provided by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Social Science Research Council, or the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Edward Holt with Grambling State University History Department. It is my pleasure to be here today with Mr. Bill Rutledge. Mr. Rutledge, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Certainly. Appreciate Uh, that. Thank you. Um, Let's just start off with a little bit of a background about you. Maybe, you know, when you were born, where you were born, growing up. Yes. I I grew up, I was born and raised in New Orleans. And uh, I finished high school at Booker T. Washington, New Orleans. And at that time, we had uh, Mr. Jack Moore, who was a sort of unofficial recruit for Rob, and he asked that I want to go to Grambling. And at that time, very few people in New Orleans knew about Grambling. And I said, yes, it's going to Grambling, yes. And so we came up here in the mid-semester, January 46, and left home, 70, 75 degree weather. And I got up here, ice and snow all over the place. So that was my first time seeing that much ice in my life. We had just a little skirmish in 37, but that what I've met up here was sort of a, an introduction to other winters I've spent out of this country. And so getting here in uh, 1946, you were at Grambling uh, for a couple years after that, and so uh, recruited for Rob, so you... Uh, what what did you uh, play for the football team? I, I, I practiced with them. Okay. Uh, I was 135 pounds soaking <laughs> wet. Yeah. And when I got here, he had 192, 100 pounds. So mm-hmm. I, I, I was no, uh, a regular on the team. Mm-hmm. In fact, I quit after the first practice. The, and then I played baseball the other two years that I was here. Okay. But of course, you know, one of those those much larger individuals would have been uh, Paul Tank Younger. Do you have any memories of, of Paul or what the campus was like when he was drafted uh, for the NFL? Yeah, I, I remember Paul and uh, we didn't have a whole lot of players here. So we had to use everybody to scrimmage. And uh, I remember they put me in the uh, back bill of the sort of what you call safety now. And uh, Paul broke through the line, and I saw him coming. I said, oh, gosh, I don't know whether I should tackle or try to do whatever. But anyway, I decided to, to go in and tackle him. But just before I did, my roommate hit Paul Young and turned him over, and I run behind and said, don't you ever come this way again, because you're going to get the same thing. <laughs> But it, it, it was fun. 
no. <laughs> and so what was what was Coach Rob like in the 40s? He was fairly young. Yeah, I think he came in about 42, I believe. But uh, he was a coach that uh, he would tell you, show you how to do a certain play. And if you couldn't do it, he would do it himself. And uh, everybody admired Coach because he was a jolly fellow. And uh, he was doing the, at the end of the war, he began to recruit from New Orleans. And had a lot of our home homeboys that uh, went to the service, and they came back and came to Grambling. And uh, this is when you begin to have a large influx of uh, uh, veterans that that came back here. And uh, Tank was about in his last year. I think he finished in 1950. But uh, we also had an outstanding uh, athletic uh, 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 reporter. He was on his way to Michigan, but Rob and, and uh, President Jones sort of stopped him and, and asked him to stay here to work. And so that he did, and it was a good thing that they did had uh, uh, Nick to come in because I don't know whether any of the schools would have known anything about Tank Younger because he wasn't the type of player that, uh, well, he wasn't the type of a uh, reporter that would just stand there and look and say, well, the, rec the, the recruiters will be here to look at him. But we didn't have that type of person. But when Nick came to this school, he brought a reputation from the Marines. He's a writer for the Marine Corps. And as you know, the Marines kept writers uh, with them, and they, all they battled, they had writers following up to see what you, what they did. And many times, you know, they had so many writers there, you would have thought that uh, the Marines was the only one in the Pacific fighting. But that was a good training ground for Nick coming in here to be a sports writer. And he, every week, he would send copies out to all papers throughout the nation, not just to Louisiana, but throughout the nation. And his last year, Tank had 50, 60 touchdowns. And I don't know if you're playing marbles, somebody going to come and see you. He hit a ball, hit a well, marble 60 times. So the scouts began to look at Tank. And Rob helped him, and uh, they gave him a tryout. And uh, he said, I'm going to stay. I'm not coming back. And sure enough, he was with the, that uh, horse, what they call it, the horse uh, line or the horse backfield, that uh, tank in 47, I believe, 47, that tank began to play for the Rams. Right, and then I guess moving <clears throat> over to baseball, you would have played under Pres Jones. So we know a lot about, you know, Pres Jones gets talked a lot about as the president of the university, but you know, what was his leadership as, as a baseball coach? President Jones was not only the coach, he was a pitcher too. And uh, he was very good, but Rob coached the team when we went off campus. We went to Atlanta and, and Alabama, those places like that. But we played baseball here right through the summer because most of the ball players stayed here at school and played baseball. 
and we had a couple of guys that uh, lived in Gibsland. So they came down to play us, and they was looking for Rob to play myself or one of the other young pitchers in Perez pitch and shut them out. <laughs> and that that was uh, my remembrance of that because Perez, he, he was quite a pitcher there. You said traveling to Atlanta, traveling to Birmingham. What was that like for the team to go in and travel to these places in the 40s? Rob traveled, uh, I guess, when he came to Graham, different places. And when I came to Graham for the spring, uh, we went to Atlanta and uh, Alabama. So we had breakfast here at the school, and uh, we only stopped for gas until we got to Tuskegee. Then that's where we slept the first night at Tuskegee. But uh, then after that, we would go to Alabama and stay at Alabama after the game and maybe go to a, a Mo House uh, and play Mo House. And then on our way back to Gramlin, he would stop at Tuskegee Air Base. And we would play that game and spend the night there. And then the next morning, we would come on back to Gramlin, and uh, we wouldn't stop only for gas until we got back to the university. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the university, obviously there's been a lot of changes that have happened, but in the 40s, what was what were the dorms like? What was it like to you know live uh, on campus in the 40s? The campus, uh, our dormitory was a uh, two, two-story white building, and uh, they had... Uh, uh, bunks, the, the double bunks, to, to contain the, the, the players and the, the personnel that was there. In the white building, we had a uh, dormitory for uh, non-veterans because when the veterans began to come to the campus, they moved them down into another building pretty close to where this, uh, the radio station is located now. And they had their own... Uh, uh, beds and everything, and they didn't mingle with the rich students that was here just out of high school. So with me, that sort of uh, gave me an opportunity to feel what it's going to be like in the military because we had the same thing. I mean, not double bunks, but we had single bunks. And, you know, do you remember about how many people were, were in a room? I would say it must have been about Eight, yeah, I think it's four bunks, double. It's about uh, eight. Okay, uh, and maybe what about the food? What do you remember? What yes. was the food like? Yeah, yes. Tell me something about. Describe some of those oh, meals for oh me. Oh gosh, we, we had good food. We cooked, we raised our own food here, and so we had uh, we ate family style. Then the and the girls that was uh working on uh, on uh, their uh, on a scholarship well they did the waitress and everything and brought big trays out to the tables and we I think it was eight at a table and uh, they would she'd bring it out and when the fellas go around and uh, just take the, the food out uh, if it didn't get to everyone then they'd hold it they'd tray up and girls would come and pick it up and go back and fill it up and come back and give the the one that didn't have it the first time then they was able to eat. 
And we used to complain about the food until I went to a Mo House in Atlanta. And their food was nearly as good as our food. <laughs> I'll never <laughs> talk about Gramlin's food because we, we really ate good here at Gramlin's. That's pretty fantastic. And then I guess the final thing that we probably should talk about is the, the classes, the classes in the 40s. What do you remember about you know, the professors or the, any of the courses that you'd have taken? Oh, the teachers were interested in the students. And uh, they didn't just see you may you, you fail and, and, and let it go at that. Uh, they made sure that uh, you did your best. And that prepared me for the Army. See, because in the Army, you had to perform your best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you didn't sort of make excuses. You owned up that if you were wrong, you say, I, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. And this is the thing that uh, I got from home about don't worry about making mistakes. If you make a mistake, you let the person know that it was your mistake, but you would make sure that it didn't happen again. And I know that when you when you came back and we'll talk about when you came back in in a couple minutes, you did education. Uh, Were you doing education classes when you first started or were you doing a different uh, curriculum? Yes, we're doing education as a teacher's college, and we had uh, elementary school teaching. Students, when they finished, they finished for ele- in elementary courses. So when I came back, I was planning on going uh, in, back into the Peace Corps to go overseas again. And my advisor mentioned to me that uh, these kids need black men in the elementary school. Yeah, no, and it's such so critical to have individuals like you uh, in the classroom provide that that example. And of course, Grambling was producing a lot of teachers at that time. Forty eight, you uh, enlisted in the military. So, uh, what was your motivation? What inspired you to to enlist at that point? A neighbor of mine, he went into the military, and he spent two years. And he came out and he attended Southern on a GI Bill. And I said, you know, I need to do that too. And so I was here at Grambling. And uh, after the spring of, of 47, I said, I'm going to go home and uh, see if I can go into the Army. And after I get out, I'll be able to continue my education on the GI Bill. And that's what I did. Uh, I took a, a postgraduate course at uh, Booker T. Washington in administration and typing. And uh, after in June, June 15, 48, uh, a recruiter was driving by. Me and an, a, a buddy of mine was walking, and he stopped and asked, did we want to uh, join the military? And he said, you know, the war's just over. I said, it's going to be a good thing for you. You got the GI Bill. I said, sure, I'll definitely join. And so we joined in, in June of 48. And June of 50, we was back in war again. 
So I I said, well, I'm in the war now, and but it wasn't my intention really, to to go back in and go back into fighting. But uh, that's how things turned out, uh, and uh, I didn't regret it any any minute that I was in the service, Jerry. And it uh, turned out a blessing for me. Well, I've been blessed all my life. Uh, so I came back here after 27 years in the Army, and it was just like a, a seamless a trans, transfer. When I came here to Gramlin, it was just like I had been here all through the, the war and everything else, other than I've been gone for 27 years because many of the people that were freshmen here when I came in my class, they were professors and doctors here at Gramlin. And most of them said, well, man, where have you been? And one of the fellows uh, was a kid when I was here in 46. He was working on campus. And uh, he told me, I'm going to come by and, and chat with you. And then he mentioned about uh, fraternities. He said, join our fraternity. Well, I had never served with anyone that was in a fraternity. I didn't know too much about fraternities at that time. And I said, okay, not really. And I could just wait till I finished and then join as a graduate chapter. But uh, I joined as undergraduate. And that was an experience for me and also for the big brothers that uh, was the, my big brothers in the chapter because many of them, I was old enough to be their fathers. And that was, it was interesting. Yeah, I pledged and uh, they would tell me to do this and do that. And, and many things I'd say, big brother, I'm not going to do that. That young lady, she's young enough to be my granddaughter. You talk going up, going up to kiss her. Anything else, but I didn't live on campus. I had an apartment in the, in the village, so they couldn't get me all the time to go out at night and do things with them. But uh, we had fun because when they graduated, they would come back on campus and uh, they said, where's Mr. Rutledge? And we, I know when I was pledging, we had something on the calendar, what it was, I was in my, my apartment. And my line brothers, one, one other fellow online with me, and he came to my door and said, Mr. Rutledge, Mr. Rutledge, they want us up on campus. I said, what do you mean up on campus? He said, yes, they want us up on campus. I put my breakfast in the oven, and I walked down there with him, and they're sitting there on a car waiting for us, and they want a stage plan. I said, you want what? Uh, we need a stage plan. I said, give me your money, big brothers, because I've just eaten breakfast now, and I don't intend to eat cold breakfast. And they looked at one another, so they finally come up with about enough money to buy a stage plan. I went down with my other line brother. We got the stage plan for them, and I went back, and they're sitting on the car waiting. I give them that stage plan, and I said, let me, I'm not going to eat cold breakfast. And I walked off from them. And the guy said, better let him go. He's not coming back. <laughs> but it was all in an experience. When you were when you were back here doing the, the education, did uh, can you maybe describe some of the, the changes that you saw? You said there were a lot of the 
the students had become become professors. But you know, what other things maybe did you notice that were were different about the campus when you came back? Well, one thing there's more buildings on the campus, but uh, other than uh, the change in the attitude of the students, they were like the students in the the seventies, uh, and they were different, and they had. Uh, demonstrations of equal rights and things like that. Uh, and they wanted uh, to be sure that uh, they are getting a good education, too. Um, then in that, so when you, when you graduated, you then uh, went, on, went on to teach. Did you stay um, connected with the university? Did you, Definitely. What, what else, you know, can you describe to us some of the things that you did, you know, in connection with the university maybe while you were teaching? Well, uh, my wife was a professor here. That uh, I met her when I came back, and uh, we got married. And she was involved, and I was supporting her in all of her efforts. And she did many, many things that uh, that involved the school in the city. So, when you came back in the seventies, obviously you had. Uh, worked with Coach Rob when he was much, much younger. But what was Coach Rob like in the 70s? Did you get a chance to interact much with him when you came back? Yes, I did. Yes, and he always never missed stick, man. And that was what they used to call, man. When I came in for the six, and he first said, well, stick, man, where you back here? <laughs> and... And we got to talking once, and I never asked him about it because, well, as a student in 46, uh, we didn't get into any big, long conversations. But when I came back and he was talking about uh, black players, and I was telling Rob, I said, I remember uh, at home for the Sugar Bowl, we had a uh, team, I was thinking it was Boston College, but it wasn't. It was the University of Indiana. And they had a, a tailback, Talafaro. He couldn't play in the cotton, in the Sugar Bowl. But what they did, they let him play in an all-star game in them because at that time we had a semi-pro players. Uh, playing, they finished college, and so they couldn't play in the pros, and they play had teams in New Orleans that they played on, and with Telefaro here, he couldn't play in the Sugar Bowl, so the school allowed him to play that Sunday against an, with a, with an All Star team, and Coach told me he played in that game because the next one was uh, uh, Pittsburgh came, and Pittsburgh told them that, told the Sugar, uh, Sugar Bowl people that uh, they're going to play all of their players. And they had a black lineman, and so he played. He's the first one that actually played in the Sugar Bowl from Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh. Mr. Relich, I'm looking at the time, and I, I think we're going to have to wrap up <clears throat> this portion, but I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, to reminisce with us, to share with us so that we're able to um, remember the legacy 
your contributions as well as the legacy of Grambling State University. So thank you so much. Appreciate that. You've been listening to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast, a production of the students and faculty of the Grambling State University History Department, along with faculty at the University of Arkansas. Be sure to listen in to one of our other episodes, and if you have a voice you would like to share or have a nomination for a voice that needs to be heard, please contact the History Department of Grayling State University for more information.